This morning we are pressing ahead in the uh, first book of 1 Samuel and the life and story of David. We are in chapter 24 and I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Hear then the word of God. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told that, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do with him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose, and stealthily he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and to put out my hand against him seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, and he left the cave, and he went on his way. Afterward, David also arose, and he went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, and he said, My Lord, the king. When Saul turned and he looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, face to the earth and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said that I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked come wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said to him, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people, and we have gathered to you and into your presence and under your word, and we pray and ask, Father, that that you would speak this morning that you would speak through your word, that you would bring it to life in our hearts and in our minds, and that you would use it to shape us in godliness, that you would use it to shape us in your own image, that we might be more like you, and that we might serve you well. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in the middle of what I 
have dubbed David's Robin Hood era, his Robin Hood period, that he spent eight years in the wilderness on the run. He is, he is a righteous man in the kingdom. He's loyal to the true king, but he is outlawed and hunted by a jealous usurper. Now, Saul is a usurper, not in the sense that he's not the rightful king, because he is, but he's a usurper in the sense that he wants to kill David to cut off the next rightful king, to secure the kingship for his line and for his son when God is giving it to David. And so, in that sense, he's a usurper, and he's chasing David down. David is outlawed, and he is hunted, and he flees into the wilderness. And he gathers around himself a band of not-so-merry men, but a band of 400 to 600, a small band of outlaws. It says, the passage tells us, every disgruntled and unhappy and bitter soul in the kingdom. I'm not sure those are the guys you want, but those are the guys God gave him. So here he is in the wilderness, an outlaw, on the run, being chased and hounded by Saul. At the end of chapter 23, the verse right before I started reading, it tells us that David went up from there and he lived in the strongholds of Angedi. The strongholds of Engedi is, a, is, a, is an area right to the west of the Dead Sea in Palestine, just to the west of the Dead Sea, and it's a, it's a wilderness area that is just cut with ravines and gorges. There are um, springs that flow out of there and water that flows out. It's a great natural, in a sense, fortress. So it says he, he hung out in the, in the fortress of Engedi. Uh, you can go up into those hills. It's riddled also with caves. It's not like this is the only cave. This is one of those areas where there are a lot of caves and a lot of uh, caverns and places to hide, and so it's a great place that he sets up shop, a uh, good hideout for an outlaw. So we're told in verse 1, as we enter into the passage this morning, that Saul is told of David's whereabouts, that he has fled to the area of Angedi, and he decided to launch an expedition to go after him. So he pulls together, together 3,000 choice men or chosen men, a small army, four, five times, five times as big as David's army, and goes after him. Heads out into the Engedi to hunt him down, right, and to put an end to this rebellion, secure the line for his son and for his children. And as he does this, you can't help it, you know, but this humorous situation unfolds, right? And you can't help it. The Bible is an earthy book. If you don't know that yet, I mean, you just read it from beginning to end. If you read it a regular, regularly, if you read all of it, you can't come away. It's an earthy book. It tells it like it is. That's one of the good things about it, I think, because it's a very human book. And so you get this, what I think is a humorous situation anyway, unfolding. They tell it like it is. You're heading out to the Engedi for a number of days in these days, and there are no, uh, there are no rest stops along the way. Right? There are no porta johns in the Engedi, right? So Saul gets out there, and <clears throat> we're going to say he just had, he had to take a potty break. And he finds a cave because a cave offers some privacy, and so he, he slips off into a cave from his men to uh, do what he has to do. And it turns out it's the very cave where David and his men have taken up shop and where they're hiding in the back of the cave. And so David's men think this is awesome. Right? And so we see in verse 4, it says, and, and the men said to David, this, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you could do with him as you will. In other words, kill him. Right? This is awesome. This is the golden opportunity. 
Who would have thunk it? Right? That, that of all the caves in the Engadi, of all the opportunity, of all the things that could happen, Saul, by himself, wanders into our cave. Right? Of all the caves and all the caverns and all the Engadi, and you wander into mine. But David slips down. The men are in the back. Like, yeah, he slips down with his knife in hand. And instead of killing Saul, he cuts a piece of his robe off and he slides back to his men. And, and you can only imagine, the Bible is also very terse. It doesn't give you a lot of detail. You can just imagine he slips back, he's got the corner of his robe, and the guys are like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to, you're supposed to do your business now. Get back there. And so they're like, we'll take care of it. And we're told then in verse 7, we're told that he, he not only refused to kill Saul, that he had to defend Saul against his men. David had to persuade his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And so Saul is able to rise up and leave unharmed. And so here David is standing against his men. It's interesting, Saul, if you remember back weeks ago, we've been preaching about him, how when he is disobeying God and doing wicked things, one of his excuses was all the people said, right? The people said, wanted to do this. The people said, and so you get Saul, who is a people pleaser, and doing what, you know, is peer pressure, doing evil because that's what everybody else is doing and what everybody else is telling him to do. And here is David. A man after God's own heart who feels the peer pressure of hundreds of armed and dangerous, uh, bitter, disgruntled souls telling him he ought to kill Saul. And he stands up to them and he defends this man who is hunting them and says, no, we're not going to do it. It's wrong to murder the king. God made him king. He is the Lord's anointed, and that's the word that's used later of Christ. It's a, that word, that anointed, it literally means Christ. It's actually a translation of that word there. It, Christ means the anointed one. And he is an anointed king. God made him king, and it's up to God to unmake him king. It's not up to David. It's not up to David to take justice into his own hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so David understands it would be wrong for him to strike Saul. To take him down. And he leaves God to carry out his purpose in his own time. Even though it means ongoing suffering. Ongoing struggle and hardship for, for David and his men. Because they will have to continue to run. And so the first application I would give you this morning coming out of this text is this. Circumstances in life will provide you many golden opportunities. Right? There are many times in life where it's just like this. It seems like the stars align and whatever it is. And then here it is, the opportunity that is before us. And some people in those opportunities, we are tempted to mistakenly reason that if God gives us the opportunity for something, it's his permission. Right? How often do we see that in our own hearts? The opportunity to do wrong. But righteousness is when the opportunity to do wrong arises. But we do what's right because we honor and serve and please God. The opportunity arises. It's a golden opportunity. Sometimes we'll think, well, it must be what he wants me to do. I've heard many people reason that way with me, that they're doing something that's very wrong. And they would say, well... God wouldn't have put this person in my life if they didn't want this to happen. Or God wouldn't have given me this opportunity if he didn't want me to take it. And that's not biblical reasoning. 
There are many opportunities. What we call those, there are many opportunities to do what's wrong. We call that temptation. And the fact that those opportunities arrive in the course of our lives doesn't mean that God is giving us permission or that it's his go-ahead to go ahead and do something. Those are the moments that try us. Those are the moments that test us. Those are the moments when we, when we cry out and we turn to him to do what is right. Providential openings are not a reliable sign of God's leading. Only his word is a reliable sign of God's leading. And so when those opportunities arise, I judge those opportunities by his word and what's right according to his word, not what's right according to the moment and the situational ethic that rises up and says, well, what else was I supposed to do? The opportunity was there. David recognizes this golden opportunity as a temptation. And he does the right thing. He does the righteous thing. And as soon as Saul steps out of the cave and gets far enough away, begins to move on with his men, and David steps up on some peak, I'm assuming he has enough distance that he thinks if he has to get out of there, he can can get away. But as soon as there's a safe distance between them, he addresses Saul. Right, he opens up this dialogue that, that engages the rest of the passage for us. Right, The rest of this is a conversation. David pleading with Saul and, and Saul answering him. As David addresses Saul, he is addressing his enemy. There's just no other way to put it. I mean, when, if somebody were hunting you and trying to kill you, and has already tried to kill you half a dozen times, you've got to call him your enemy, right? He's your enemy. He's after you. He is your persecutor. He is your persecutor. He is your pursuer. He is the one who wants to kill you. And so this is the guy that David is addressing. And it's interesting. You've got to keep that in your head because when you read his address, it's very gracious. Right? He honors Saul as king. He honors the man and he honors his office as the Lord's anointed. The Lord put him in this position and until the Lord takes him out of this position... He's king. And so he honors him as the king. You see in verse 8, as he addresses him, this is afterward, David arose, he went out from the cave, and he calls after Saul, and he calls him, my lord, that is, sir, your majesty, you know, whatever proper address, my lord, the king. Might have had some other choice names if it were one of us calling after him. You know, especially if we had just pulled off something pretty slick and we'd be, we'd have some taunts in mind, right? We'd have some, we'd have probably a, some name like, hey, bonehead, you know, things that we're not allowed to say, children. <laughs> things that, that we get corrected when we say, but we are tempted to say, right? And he would, you know, look what I got, you know, something that he would have to say to them, but he doesn't. His, his speech is full of nobility, it's full of grace, it's full of pleading. There are words that flow. We looked last week at Psalm 57. He, David wrote many of those psalms, those poems, those songs, those prayers. He wrote them during these periods of his life. In Psalm 57, it says, was written at the time he was in the cave. And it was either the cave he was in la- a couple of weeks ago when we talked, or this one. But either way, Psalm 57 fits. So where does David's words come from? I believe they come from Psalm 57. You can go back and read it. It comes out of a, of a deep communion a relationship with God the Father he knows God he loves God he worships God 
He is in touch with all that's going on. He is seeking for God to change him and to mold him. And as he comes out of the prayers that he's writing and and praying in Psalm 57, then he is full of the grace that he needs to give. Where is the grace? We need grace for each other. Even our enemies, we're going to talk about here in a moment. Even our enemies. And where does it come from? I believe it comes out of Psalm 57. And a deep fellowship with the Father. There's no anger. There's no hatred. There's no reproaches. In fact, in verse 11, he actually calls him my father. And he is literally his father-in-law. He's married to Saul's daughter, Michael. So he is his father-in-law, and he calls him my father. And he pleads with him. He pleads his innocence. And, and then he demonstrates his innocence by not killing him, by letting him go. And he pledges several times in the course of that speech, doesn't he? Several times he says, my hand, verse 10, verse 12, verse 13, my hand shall not be against you. My hand will not be the hand to strike you. I will not take revenge. I will not come after you. I will not harm you even though you're trying to harm me. I won't do it. And for about five minutes, Saul is moved. We'll see this, we call this David's Robin Hood period. You know, this is, I don't know sure what I would call Saul's period, it's Paul's period of wavering. Because one day he says, David, my son, come home. Five minutes later, he's trying to pin him to a wall with a spear. And then he's struck again, and oh, David, I'm sorry, come back, I'll be nice. And, and then he sends an assassination squad to his house overnight. You know, and then we got this five minutes, there's again, it's just about five minutes, Saul is moved by David's speech and his mercy and his restraint that he has that he has shown him kindness in the face of his evil. And he says in verse 17, he calls, he responds to David's calling him father, and he says, My son, is that you, my son, David? You are more righteous than I am. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Right here we strike at a central, biblical, divine nerve. This is a central theme through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And it's not only a central theme that runs through the scripture, it really is the very heart of the gospel. The kind of goodness that is offered in the face of evil. Right? That is at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of godliness here in the Old Testament. Saul calls him righteous. You are more righteous than I am because in the face of my evil, you have responded to me with goodness. It's righteousness. Even in the Old Testament, and we see it as godliness. God-likeness in the New Testament because it's at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of who God is. Right? We live in a world that has rebelled against its creator. That does evil in the face of God. That does great evil in the face of God. If you see in your bulletin, I don't know if you found the outline there, the first quotes I have under point two. In Romans 1, we're told that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They knew, they knew that there was a God, but they did not honor Him as God. They did not give thanks to Him as God. And then we're told that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, that is, for shadows, for the stuff of the earth, as if the stuff of the earth was what mattered. As if at the center of the life there's something else other than the God who made us. 
We've made life, the human race has made life about everything and anything except God. And we love it and we serve it and we indulge in it. But it says they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him as God. They exchanged his glory for the stuff of earth. And so Romans 3, further in the book of Romans, Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who's seeking for God. All have turned aside. So Romans 3.23, the next one there. All have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. And so what does God do? Right in the face of great evil against, although they knew God, they didn't honor Him or do good to Him or, or give thanks to Him. Or What does God do in the face of all this evil? The Bible tells us what He does is He sends His only Son. He sends His only Son to bear the sin of the world in His own body on the cross that those who should trust in Him and put their faith in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, could be made right with God, could be reconciled to God. He repays goodness and He offers mercy in the face of great evil that He has suffered from the race of mankind that He has made. There it is in Romans 5.10. We're told that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. When we were his enemies, like Saul was David's enemy, and it was righteousness for David to return goodness for his evil. And when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son as he does goodness toward us and offers us mercy in the life and death of his son. When we were his enemies, he saves us. We deserve justice and judgment and He shows us mercy and He gives us grace. And so, in a very real sense, what God does is He overcomes our evil with His goodness. When we are exchanging the glory of God for the stuff of earth, God comes in the person of His Son and He overcomes our evil with His own goodness. And He doesn't even just leave us there. He not only gives us goodness in the face of our evil, but the gospel is, and and the good news of the Scripture is, that He begins to remake us in His own likeness. He begins to, to transform us in the likeness of that goodness in the face of evil. Goodness wins, and it begins to change us. It begins to transform us. It captures our... It gives us a new heart. It captures our hearts and our minds. It gives us a taste of His own goodness. And so this act of goodness of God in Christ becomes the source and the pattern of our own goodness in the face of evil. Look there in your bulletin, then under number 3 in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. David loved Saul. What does that look like? It looks like returning him good for his evil. That's what it looks like. Love your enemies, he says, and do good. Do goodness. Do righteousness. And then he even gives some possibilities of what that might look like. Expecting not lending and not expecting in return. Your reward will be great. Why? Because you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. You'll be like God. You'll be His children. You'll bear the family likeness. As children of God, you will bear the likeness of the Father. Who is like this? This is what God is like. He is good in the face of evil. And so He says, love your enemies. And you also do good. 
right? 1 Peter 3.9, as we press into the New Testament, he says, Peter, writing to the church, says, not returning evil for evil, not returning insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, right? Returning goodness instead of evil. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a world that was like that? Can you imagine a church that was like that? And then imagine a world that was like that. Not returning evil for evil. Not returning insult for insult. But giving a blessing instead. My friends, you will receive evil. You receive it every day. You mean evil in the sense of people are going to do you wrong. They're going to insult you. They're going to let you down. They're going to betray you. They're going to do things and say things and Sometimes it will be on purpose and sometimes it won't. It will just be thoughtlessness. You will be wronged. You will, you will encounter evil. It may come from someone close. It may come from your parent. It may come from your spouse. It may come from your father, from David. It was his father-in-law. It may come from your co-worker. It's going to come because we're those kind of people in need of saving and changing. We will. But he says this, when you do, he says, don't imitate the evil you encounter. Don't imitate the evil that you encounter. Don't sin with them. Don't join in. Don't become like that. Because when you do, you become part of the problem. Right? Do you see that? Evil is, evil is expressed in the world from some will, some moral agent. Somebody does you wrong. Evil is expressed. And when we respond evil to evil, insult for insult, we become part of the problem. We, we had one problem, evil in the world, and now I've become an agent of evil. I've become part of the problem. Now instead of one, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, is the old saying, you know, but that's the way we function. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. See that no one does that. See that no one lives like this. Don't let it be this kind of a world, especially in your church, but as you walk out these doors, we become agents of goodness. See that no one does. Always seek that which is good. Don't respond in kind. You know, we live in a world that is just that. We live in a world that is tit for tat. Every one of you knows it. Every one of you can think almost immediately, even this week, maybe even yesterday, maybe before you even got to church this morning. Because we are like that. It's, it's, the, it's like fish in a water. It's the water we take in, of the culture, of the world we take in. We live in a tit for tat world, and our temptation in those golden opportunities is to do what David didn't do, which is to do the tat for the tit. The tit for the tat, to to respond in kind, to return evil with evil, to insult with insult, to take our opportunity. You're going to, you know the phrases, right back at you. I just come out of my mouth, right back at you. He hit me first. He started it. She started it. It's come out of your mouth, hadn't it? And not just as children. I, I, I can remember my children saying it, but, but we say that. He hit me first. He started it. Well, she said, well, if she hadn't have said, then I, 
If he, he hadn't done that, she was mean to me. So, like, what are these? These are all phrases that we all have used, we hear every day, and what are they? They are the justification to return evil, aren't they? She started it, so I finished it. She was mean to me, so right back at you. Phrases justifying our sin, justifying becoming part of the problem, justifying entering into evil just like we've encountered. We say it in our marriages. If my spouse wouldn't be like this, and I wouldn't be like that. If my spouse hadn't said this, I mean, I do it every day. I mean, it's, it's where we live. If, if, but for the grace of God, you know, we return in kind. You know, if she talks to me in that tone of voice, guess which tone of voice she's getting back? You know, if she, if she didn't, you know, do this, you know, then guess what? Fine. That's how you want to play? Right, don't we? I mean, we do it in our marriage. We do it at work, that co-worker. Oh, fine, that's how you want to play? Okay, I can play that game. You know, I can give it right back to you. Oh, God have mercy. We can give it right back. We are masters of justifying the response of evil with evil, of becoming part of the problem. God says, overcome evil. Don't become part of it. Overcome evil evil, let it die with you and give goodness back. Rather than letting it take seed in you and bearing fruit out of you, let it die with you and give goodness back. Romans 12, 17, the last verse there in your bulletin. Romans 12, 17 and 21. Again, another place the scripture says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable. Give thought to what is goodness. Don't just retaliate. And then he says this, and I think this is the, again, from Genesis to Revelation, this is the driving force of the scripture, of the heart of God, the character of God, the work of God is this. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the heart of the Bible. That is the heart of God. That's what God is doing in in the life and death of his son. That's what he's doing in the life of his people once he gets a hold of you. And your faith is in him. Is to begin to change us into that image. The image of godliness, godlikeness. Because God overcomes evil with his goodness. He offers us the chance to be like him. If we are overcome, you know, when we respond in kind, when somebody says this to you, and you say this to them, and we respond in kind, we have been overcome with evil. We lose. Right? Do we see that? We have to see that. When my tone of voice matches the tone of voice I don't like, I've been overcome with evil. I've done the same thing. I lose. I lose. We become instruments of evil. Other people's evil never excuses our own, which is what all those justifying phrases are trying to say. Well, he started it. As if that justifies me being evil. You know, she was mean. Well, as if that justifies me being mean. You know, of me dishonoring God, me disobeying God, me becoming an agent in the world and ceasing to be an agent of good. 
right? And it doesn't justify us. It doesn't excuse us. It is God's glory to overcome us by grace in the person of his son Christ. And as he overcomes us by his goodness in the person of Christ, it is his glory to make us sources of his goodness. That's what he's doing. He's changing us, transforming us, right? So just a few things as we end here. Let God give us this vision. You know, we should have a passion. A vision of the kingdom of God is the kingdom where where God has begun to gather a people and a change of people, his subjects, his children, and his kingdom that are not like that anymore, not like the world. They're being transformed from inside out by his grace and by his goodness. A vision of a life where we are overcoming evil. Again, imagine your own life, your own marriage, when your spouse says this, and instead of saying that, you... Find the resources to answer gently. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. The soft answer, the, the gentle answer, the kind answer, the goodness turns away wrath and changes things. can change the atmosphere of your home if you stop playing that game. Stop being part of the problem. And imagine if you had two spouses. See, we take turns in our home. Both of us are in the process, you know, of growing out of it. And so one day I may do something, and she's the gracious one and speaks the gospel and speaks goodness where I have given her evil. And then the next day it's reversed. And we save each other in that respect. We save our marriage by, by offering the grace to each other. And on good days, we're both gracious. We need to take a hard look at our lives and see where we have become part of the problem. Returning evil with evil. And ask God what it would look like for me to become part of the solution. For me to become a source of goodness. And as soon as I say that, and as I've been thinking about this all week, and thinking, as soon as we are told this, we need to understand that apart from God's grace, we are not these kind of people. You know, we're told in the story of David again and again, Saul noticed and said, God was with David. It's one of the things that made him crazy and made him want to kill him. He could see God was with David. He could see it in his military successes. But what we need to understand, it was not, God was not only with David in his military successes. God was with David in his moral successes. Or there wouldn't have been any of those either. And so when When David is righteous, more righteous than Saul, to return goodness with evil, it's because God is with him. Maybe because he is with God. Because of Psalm 57 and Psalm 34 and 35 and 54 and and the whole slew of them. Because God is with David and David is with God in a relationship. And unless God is with us, we are incapable of this kind of goodness. And we need to begin to seek the grace to change, to seek his power, to learn the prayer, God help me. I can't tell you how many times in relationship with my children and at work and with my wife and in the world, they just, my prayer again and again is God help me, right? Fill me with your spirit and help me to be different. Help me to give better than I get. Help me to be then a source of goodness in your world. Not because I am something, but because you are with me. Help me, enable me, fill me with your spirit. To receive evil and to overcome it. To give back goodness and kindness and patience and gentleness. Do you recognize that list? Right? Those are the fruits of God's Spirit. Who, When He lives in us and when we have fellowship with Him, 
changes everything. We need to learn to pray. Circumstance by circumstance, God, help me not to be a part of the problem. Help me to forgive. Deliver me. Give me freedom from bitterness. Give me freedom from anger. Give me freedom to to love. Give me the freedom to not be a part of the problem. Give me the freedom to be a source of grace. Jesus offered himself as a dying sacrifice so that we could offer ourselves, the Bible says, as living sacrifices. So that our lives would become a force of goodness in the world and in the face of evil. That there would be flowing from believers everywhere, from churches everywhere, goodness, watering the land, flowing out and watering the land and producing fruits, saving us. Godliness brings God great glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we are part of the problem. And we confess that it is our character the gravity of ourselves to go that route, to respond in kind. Father, I am not a fountain of goodness, especially when I am wrong. Father in heaven, we come this morning as a people who long to be like you. We come as a people who long to be godly because you are with us, because you have granted your spirit to us, and because you are doing that work that only you can do to make us more like Jesus. Oh, would you pour out your spirit this morning. Give us vision. Give us passion. Lead us. Let your kindness lead us to repentance. And may we walk with you daily in such a way that we would find the resources and the grace to give away goodness to your greater glory. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.